what does it mean to bring our whole selves into the world? To give ourselves the gift of unconditional acceptance? Join me as we learn together. I'm Jorgen Salvis, and this is Unshaming. On March 16th, eight people were killed in a mass shooting at spas in Atlanta, Georgia. Six of those victims were Asian American women. At least four were of Korean descent. According to a national report released by Stop Asian American Pacific Islander Hate, there were nearly 3,800 hate incidents reported against Asian Americans in 2020. The rise of anti-Asian violence in America coincides with a disturbing global trend of discrimination against Asians around the world, stemming from the coronavirus pandemic. But prejudice against Asians in America has been prevalent for centuries. In this episode, I interviewed Tony Lee, an Asian-American journalist and producer for NBC News. Over the course of 2020, he's covered the coronavirus pandemic and the rise in anti-Asian violence in depth. Tony himself was born in South Korea. He moved between Eastern Europe, South Korea, and Canada until the age of 12 when his family decided to move permanently to Los Angeles. My interview with Tony covered a wide range of topics that highlighted just how nuanced, complex, and historically overlooked prejudice against Asians in America has always been. The primary thread that tied all of Tony's stories together was the dehumanization of Asian Americans. That is, literally stripping their humanity away from them. At the beginning of every episode on Unshaming, I ask every guest what their boundaries are. I understand that the topics we cover on this show are highly personal, and I try to treat that with respect and sensitivity. When I asked Tony this very question, he was adamant about telling his story in full, without shame. His descriptions can be difficult for some to hear, so listener discretion is advised. I, along with the entire Unshaming team, stand with the Asian American community. We extend our condolences to the families of those affected by the tragedy in Atlanta. The women murdered were mothers. They were daughters. They were Americans. Their names were Hyun Chung Grant, Xiao Jie Tan, Delania Ashley Yan, Young A. Yu, Alicias Hernandez Ortiz, Suncha Kim, Sunchung Park, Dao Yofung. This is the shame of anti-Asian violence. Tony, I wonder if you could start off by talking about what you really loved about growing up Korean. Yeah, I really just like loved Korean food. Like I would just go over to my friend's place in like Canada when I was like eight years old and they would be eating like potatoes and like a steak or a pasta like every day. But then I'd just be like, oh, I don't want to eat dinner here because my mom's cooking like bomb 
like Korean food back home. She'd be making like kimchi stew or like curry or um, my favorite was like the seaweed birthday soup that she always made for me. And I just remember like thinking that I loved it so much. It just felt so like comforting. It felt like such a unique thing that no one else like in my community had. I just remember like that being so, so special to me. Shifting gears here a little bit. You hear the news, as we all do, about anti-Asian violence this year, the rise of anti-Asian violence. What was coming to mind at that point as you were hearing about it throughout 2020, but it kind of seems like it's been really escalated at the beginning of this year too? I think there's a sentiment that a lot of Asian people have been saying nowadays that they've been feeling for a long, long time, which is no one cares. So when I heard about all this rise in anti-Asian crimes, especially towards women, it, it made complete sense to me. It was not surprising, but it really, really broke my heart because I never thought it would rise to the level of violence And like violence against helpless elderly and also like mass shootings. Like that's so, so shocking to me. I thought microaggressions were one thing, but when I heard about the elderly people getting pushed and killed and, you know, obviously the shooting in Atlanta, like it broke me. And now is really the first time I fear for my life in this country. Like I am so scared to walk alone. I'm so scared for my mom. Like, I'm so scared for my parents, my parents' friends. I'm so scared for my friends' parents. Like, I am so scared to be Asian in this country. But I'm also not surprised. I'm so not surprised. So going back to your childhood, yeah. when you when you say this is something that Asian people have been feeling for a long time, and finally the rest of us are starting to listen and starting to take notice, when did you begin feeling like this? I don't think I really began thinking anything about me being Korean until high school, or sorry, until I moved to LA. The first assignment they would give me at seventh grade, it was like a map of the US and they would ask me to fill out every state. And I like, who can even do that now, you know? And so I just remember doing it and I like failed because I like, I think I only knew like California and Texas. And then the teacher would be like, oh my God, like, when did you move here from Korea? And I was like, I came here from Canada, actually. And like, my English is like fluent at this point. (laughs) And um, that was actually the first time I really felt othered for being Asian. And it was the, and, and you know, this is like the start of my adolescence, right? So I just remember feeling like, oh, like, I'm different. And I just remember like even making some friends. I had this like really close friend, his name is Jeremy. And we were like hanging out and he was like, Tony, I like really like you. Like, you know, I'm really glad you moved here. Like you're really cool, like for an Asian. And I remember back then being like, ooh, I'm cool for being an Asian. Like now I think back being like, that was very insulting. (laughs) But like back then I was so proud of that. I would really like embrace like that cool for being Asian kind of persona so I would be like you know people would like call me like kimchi like as a nickname and like because they don't know anything else about like the Korean culture like I was thinking about this recently and I just you know like that was just really contributing to like the fact that I felt so othered by them but I just wanted to fit in so 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 badly 
I remember this like one very specific moment. It was so traumatic for me. I was hanging out with a friend and my friend was getting bullied by this guy who is white. And he was like saying really awful things about my friend who was also Asian. And so I was coming to my friend's defense being like, yo, you can't talk to my friend like that. And then my friend, I think in that moment of like confrontation made fun of that white man's um, body size. And so was like calling him fat. It was like such a, like a juvenile fight. And then I just remember that white guy saying, I may be fat and I can change that, but you can never change the fact that you're Asian. And he said that to both of us, like so matter of fact. And I just remember thinking about that for weeks, like every single day being like, oh, like he's right. I will never be able to like change the fact that I'm Asian and people hate me for that. And they're using Asian like as an insult against me. That was the first time I really felt so ashamed to be Asian. When was your aha moment when you start to realize, oh, oh, wait, this, this is not normal. So I think um, the, the kind of aha moment where I realized these microaggressions and macroaggressions were happening all my life was college. Cause I went to Berkeley, you know, it really is the birthplace of like a lot of civil rights um, activism in America. And they talk about that all the time. And that was the first time I actually heard the term microaggression. I was just like, oh, I thought like everyone deals with this. Like even if you're white, like people deal with like, you know, their like body size issue, like comments or like, you know, like, I don't know, like hair color, like anything. I just thought like it was just something that was just so prevalent. I thought it wasn't a big deal until they were really talking about the microaggressions that black people face, that Latino people face, that native people face and that Asian people face. And I was like, oh, I've been dealing with this my whole life and I never realized it. I just thought it was like a fact of life. So when you started piecing together your story, what did you start remembering? I just remember like when I was in like 10th grade, I was in like an honors chemistry class and it was such, such a hard class and everyone around me was failing. And I was like the only one really studying really hard, getting the A, like, you know, doing well on every test and people wanted to cheat off of me really bad. And they were like going through every single mode of cheating that you can think of, where it's like looking over or just like bribing me or like stuff like that. And and every time I'd like get a test back and they would see the A, like I would always hear under my breath people being like, oh my God, like, of course he did. He's such an Asian. Or just being like, only the Asians can get an A in this class. Like, why do we even bother? Or just like, I just remember thinking like, oh, okay, well, they're not saying anything bad. They're just like, they're just disappointed in themselves for not getting a good grade, but you know, they're not really saying anything negative towards me. Um, and I remember this even more clearly during SAT time, people were trying to study with me like a lot because they thought that I would do really, really well behind my back. I found out that they were calling it the Asian tutor club. And I was like, and I was the only person like tutoring them, you know? And I'm, and then they would just like, they wouldn't even say like the Tony tutoring club. They would like, just call me the Asian <laughs> And Tony, yeah. How did that make you feel at the time? At the and time, even now, looking back, yeah. At the time, I really thought it was a compliment. I was so brainwashed into thinking that if they think being an Asian means you're smart, then that's okay. That's like such a good association that I am bringing to my ethnicity. So back then, that was what I was thinking. But I think back now, and I think. 
just how harmful that is because not only is that harmful to maybe another Asian person who may not excel at school because it might make them feel like not Asian enough, but also it like dehumanizes me. It makes me just like part of this machine that's supposed to be like this robot tutor who's like getting straight A's. It like completely takes out any part of my personality, any part of like my generosity in tutoring them, like my hard work. It just like distilled it right down to the fact that I'm Asian. Thinking back now, I'm like, wow, they did not even think of me as a person. I was like this like, like SAT tutoring like bot that they were just like using for their own gain. Fast forward to growing up as an adult. How did anti-Asian experiences converge from adolescence to now being a gay man? And that's really interesting that like you asked that because I think I discovered another form of anti-Asian racism as I was developing into an out gay Asian man. I just remember the first time I ever heard my race being like raised in that kind of context when like they'd, I would hear guys like at clubs be like, be my good little Asian boy. Or, you know, like, like you love being my Asian sub, don't you? As I've been learning about fetishism and fetishization of Asian women, I think a lot of that comes from as as feminism in America began to grow, um, I think white men sort of became fed up with American women being independent and wanting a career and then began to look at Asian women as these like silent and loyal and obedient mm-hmm. uh, wives. And so I, I understand a lot of that in the context of Asian women. And I'm wondering how some of that translates into you being a gay man. I mean, like the objectification and the sec- hypersexualization of Asian women is so, so gross and disgusting. And I think when it comes to the gay community, I think some of that translates into how non-Asian men view Asian men. You know, the way straight men view Asian women, I think, is how um, gay men view Asian men. It's it's just like this like common trope of Asian people being, like you said, very subservient, obedient, down to do whatever the white man uh, wants, whatever pleases him. And I think the reason it's been working for so, so long is because I think Asian men, Asian gay men, often grow up idealizing the white man. I must admit for the longest time, like my ideal man was like the white frat guy, the hyper-masculine, like athletic, like very all-American white guy was like my like type for the longest time. And that's because like media, the way my high school friends kind of vocalized their attraction to other men, like that was what everyone thought was like the hottest, hottest person and the person you should always try to be. And so when I was like coming to my own sexually, like that was the person I wanted to be with and end up with and thought like that was going to be like my husband or person I end up with. So as I, I personally was coming into like my sexual kind of confidence and independence, like that was who I wanted to be with. And so I didn't care that white men were fetishizing me because I was like so like, so glad to be in their presence because that was exactly what I wanted. 
you know, you were thinking I'm lucky to be considered attractive by this white man, no matter how he considers me attractive. Exactly. You know, like who am I to like decide who is attracted to me? So if this white guy thinks I'm attracted because I'm Asian, like I am so, so lucky to have this guy view me that way. So it basically goes back to this sentiment of you don't even see me as a human being. You just see me as an object. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And so much of what's put out there, even in the dating apps, it was so apparent that no one thought Asian men were attractive, like at all. Like, and I remember reading this one report that, you know, this one specific dating app released about their um, their user base. And they basically mentioned that Black women and Asian men were least likely to find any matches or interactions on their site. And this was like surveying millions and millions of users. So I just remember reading that and being like, wow, like if no one thinks I'm attractive, then I need to like pick up anyone that I can get. And that included anyone who would fetishize me. And But back then I didn't even know that it was fetishization. I thought it was just like, oh, he thinks I'm cute. Like, okay, I just need to go for it because he's white, he's like decently attractive and he's interested in me. I didn't even know, it didn't even register to me that that person might only be looking at me as like an Asian and not like as a person with feelings, personality, my own unique kind of things that I bring to the table, like none of that. It was strictly for the fact that I was Asian. How does all of this culminate post COVID-19? How is all of this manifesting for you and boiling over in in your life, Tony? I mean, when we talk about like violence towards Asian people, this is really nothing new. You know, all the way back from, you know, Chinese people immigrating into the U.S. to build the railroads to like the Opium War or to even the invasion of Korea. Like, you know, you look at the Chinese Exclusion Act or the Japanese internment camps. It's like people just have never in this country have never viewed Asian people as Americans, we were always, always, always othered. And so when Trump last year so famously called <laughs> COVID-19 the Chinese virus or the China virus, like it kind of gave steam to an already existing sentiment that was not so vocalized and it kind of empowered them to really go full force out there and be racist. And for me personally, I remember when the pandemic first started happening, like in March or April last year, I was still living in New York. I was living in East Village, which New York is very liberal, but East Village is very liberal. And I got a message on a dating app that said, here, I'm just going to like, I'm just going to read it verbatim because I don't, I don't want to um, misrepresent what this person said. It was pretty awful. He said, Hi, you dirty fucking corona spreading chink. Get a gun, put it in your yellow mouth, and pull the trigger. You dirty subhuman anteater eating animal. Slanty eyed, buck toothed dog, communist little dicked retard, fucking kill yourself. And that was like right in the beginning of the pandemic um, and the lockdowns. And I remember getting that, and it was anonymous. Um, there was no like, face attached to it. And I reported it. And I remember feeling like nothing. What was going through your mind when you got that message? What what happens next? So I, I screenshotted it and I kind of like showed it to a few friends, but it didn't really upset me because it's 
been so, so, so normalized for me. I have experienced racism so much. Like even my friends who are minorities, like they say like, oh, I've never really experienced direct, direct racism, you know? And I was like, really? Because I, I think I experienced it like at least once every other week. And, you know, this could be even like even when I went to London in 2019 and someone on the street yelled at me, go back to where you came from. Or I was in Palm Springs, you know, on vacation uh, a few summers ago. And then someone was trying to get my attention and they, they, they couldn't get my attention. So they said, hey, Asian, stuff like that. Like it just happens all the time. So when I got this message in the beginning of the pandemic, it just like didn't even phase me. It was so, so normal. But it wasn't really until... The pandemic got worse and worse and worse. I couldn't even go out with people giving me, like people glaring me down, like crossing the street because I was on that side of the street or I would be on a plane and people would swerve away because I was Asian and they wouldn't do that for the person in front of me, like only for me. We have talked about Asian American identity in the context now of growing up in America, in the context of being gay in America, you are a journalist. How do you kind of navigate this moment being Asian American and also having to cover this? What yeah. what does that relationship look like for you as a professional? It's hard. Like <laughs> simply put, it's really, really hard when the whole protests kind of erupted after George Floyd last year, like that was already really hard for me because as a journalist, you you don't have the liberty of turning the news off and kind of taking a mental health break. You really don't. I had to watch so many body cam footages. I had to transcribe so many body cam footages. Like I had to watch it over and over and over again. And I heard about crimes going on like literally every single inch of this country for months. I was so traumatized. And, you know, this is like the job as a journalist when like things get really hard you can't turn away. You have to report on it. So this year, when we saw all the high-profile anti-Asian crimes in the U.S. and all the videos coming out, it was kind of like round two for me. I just remember feeling so numb, so depressed, crying. But this is stuff that I have to do. I can't turn away. I can't turn my phone off. I have to literally watch that man get pushed in San Francisco. I had to watch that, I think, a lot, at least 100 times. Um, to get like the time codes correct or to like get like the actual like description of the event correct. Like it was so, so hard for me. People don't realize that journalists, like they really, when things get tough in this country, can't turn it off and they have to like keep reporting on it. And it can really take a mental toll. I go back to, you know, saying that I don't, this was never surprising for me because like, well, like we talked about, like, I think people think it's okay to commit crimes against Asian people because they just assume that Asian people won't fight back. They won't speak up. They won't report on it. And, you know, data actually supports this, you know, like, yes, Stop AAPI reported that 3,800 people have experienced, uh, you know, anti-Asian crimes or incidents like since the start of the pandemic, but they also caveat that it's underreported. And so like my job as an Asian American journalist right now is to give platform to these stories and really fight with our executive producers or our editors to really magnify these stories because it's so, so important for me. One way that I can help as a journalist is to cover it and to bring awareness. That's like what I can do, even at the expense of my own mental health, you know? I think this question might seem a little trite, but I'm genuinely curious to know, Tony, how are you? Thank you for that question. <laughs> I'm doing okay. 
generally I'm okay. When I learned about the mass shooting in Atlanta, I cried for 30 minutes. I felt really numb and I felt really helpless. But at the same time, I needed to snap out of it because I need to live my life and I need to be happy. Like I can't be sad all the time. I really can't. And if I'm sad, like I won't be able to function at work and stand up for my own people. Like if I'm sad, I won't be able to be a good friend. I won't be a good family member. I won't be a good support system to other people who are struggling. So I needed to really snap out of it. But, you know, it is hard. Like, I'm not going to lie. It's really hard. What is, and I know this is hard to see at the moment, but what is giving you hope about this moment? I think the hope is that we're seeing such an amplification and I am so, so, so thankful for my other, you know, black indigenous people of color friends and people in my life that have reached out to me and to, and to let me know that they're there for me. It's so, so great for me to see that, that we're really all in this together and there's so much solidarity. Like that's, what's giving me hope. It's that we're all really in this together and there are people out there that are really here to support me and to fight with me. And that brings me hope. And what is bringing a smile to your face right now? Right now, I think what's bringing me joy is seeing the COVID numbers go down, more people getting vaccinated, the kind of conversations I'm having with my friends about what we're going to do once things open up, like the optimism that's over there and the kind of fantasizing about the amount of fun we're going to have, the weather getting warmer. Like in LA today was so gorgeous. Like that made me so happy to be able to like go out and have a picnic with my friends. Kind of like really taking stock in the things that are so good in my life. It's it's really it's really bringing me like a lot of happiness right now. What is making you really proud to be an Asian American in this moment in America? What makes me really proud to be Asian American in this moment is just the fact that I'm starting to realize how much of our culture has influenced this country and how much of our culture people actually love and how much solidarity is behind us. And that comes with people really like loving our music, our food, like, you know, our language. And I am so, so proud of that movement because that makes me so proud of myself. All the stuff that I was ashamed of when I was a kid is something that I'm so happy I have right now. I wish that when I was 12 or 13, like someone at my stage in my life right now would have said, be proud of who you are and be proud of your Koreanness and your language and your culture and the stuff you eat, because that's the stuff that people are going to love about you when you're like older, you know? I'm so happy I'm fluent in Korean. I'm so happy I still love Korean food and know how to cook. Like, I'm so happy that, you know, I can still dance along and sing along to K-pop bands. <laughs> like, I, I'm so happy that I can even go back to Korea right now and be totally fine because I still am so connected with that culture. Like, that's something that I'm so, so proud of. And I know it's something that other people love because it's something other people find so cool right now, too. What do you want other Asian Americans to know right now? I wish other Asian Americans knew that this country really is for them, built by them. And as much as they feel othered and as much as they feel like people are trying to 
make you feel like you're not American enough or not American at all. Like this country is yours. Like we have such a rich culture and background and diversity. There's just so much to love and explore. And, you know, if like anything that's going on now, all the protests, all like the solidarity is showing us is that people want to stand by us. They need us. Asian Americans are Americans. Asian Americans are Americans, through and through, 100%. Well, Tony, thank you for trusting me to share your story. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm Jorgen Salvis, and you've been listening to Unshaming. For more information about anyone featured on the show, follow us on Instagram at Unshaming or visit unshamingpodcast.com. If you liked this episode, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have questions or want to tell us what you're unshaming, DM us on Instagram or email us at unshamingpodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Mirzi for generously providing her original music. You can find her wherever you stream. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.